Hello, this is Lowell Thompson with Learning with Lowell, a podcast that covers healthcare, biotech, anything science-related really, or anything that really fascinates me. I'm open to input on that. Any suggestions or advice, send them my way. Go to learningwithlowell.com and subscribe today. Hello again. We are in part two with Elizabeth, the, po- the amazing policy manager. Today we're going to get into her thoughts beyond choosing the right food, the things she does, a little bit into federal spending, and a little teaser at the end of the farm bill. Overall, a very fun and enjoyable conversation. I'm interested to hear your feedback. Thank you. Uh, this idea of like how to pick the right foods, I think that's where we were last time. And you had some evolved ideas or like you, you thought about it some more and you thought about some things that you think about while you think about that, and then you gave some advice in an email. I, I really like the, maybe not the advice per se, but like your perspective on how you view, like go through the process. And I think like that process in of itself will benefit people who maybe are not as educated on the subject. Yeah, yeah. So, you know, I've been thinking about this. It's it's really, this is a really tough question. And I think, you know, I think I said this before, like the easy thing is to say, well, just don't eat this or just buy this and you're all set. And it's you just, there's no easy answer. And I really struggled with this for a long time. I think a lot of people really feel like, well, if I just buy everything organic, then I'm fine, then I'm healthy, then I'm doing good for the environment. And, you know, there are some aspects to that, but it's definitely not the whole story. And, you know, depending on what your values are, the the right choice can be can be really different. You know, it's um, it's 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 just a really tough question, um, depending on what your own standards are. For example, um, you know, I talk to a lot of people who honestly think that organic, like the certification is synonymous with sustainable, but they don't know what the organics regulations with the certification actually means. And they don't necessarily, and I mean, I'm, I'm in the same boat, have a really strong, strict idea of what the term sustainable means either. And it, you know, depending on who you ask, you can get a million different responses. So, so, uh, so for example, um, you know, if, if, if the environment is really important to you, if you don't want a lot of, of chemicals or pest, I should say pesticides or herbicides in the environment, um, you can still use them um, if you buy or if you uh, grow things organic. Uh, it, they just have to be quote unquote natural as opposed to synthetic. So for example, uh, copper sulfate is, or sulfur is a totally naturally occurring compound that lots of people use um vineyards use it to to try to tamp down fungal infections and fungal infections in plants are like bacterial infections in humans they're just omnipresent really difficult to deal with you need a lot of tools in your toolbox and organic farmers need them too so you can use that um because it's quote-unquote natural but it's terrible for the environment to just like spread a bunch of sulfur everywhere and you know you're getting your organic whatever wine grapes whatever and there's you know chances are it's because the the grower used used sulfur. So another thing is, so organic growers aren't allowed to use synthetic pesticides. Um, synthetic just means they were made in a lab as opposed to made naturally. So you could think of like synthetic vanilla versus, uh, or like artificial vanilla versus natural vanilla. One comes from a bean and needs to be harvested from an orchid. And, you know, the other is just 
made in a lab. And, and, you know, there is like sometimes a difference between those. Um, it, it, I mean, I could, most people I think would be able to taste the difference in vanilla versus vanillin, which is made in the lab. Um, other chemicals are identical. So like the compound that goes like makes banana flavor is, is identical between the one that's in the banana and the one you can make in a lab. So, so it, it, the synthetic versus natural label actually doesn't say that much um, about how close to the original it is or what it actually does. And I, I think what I put in, in the email to you is, is that these, the natural ones, um, aside from them just existing in nature already, like sulfur, like, you know, radiation for that matter, um, they all, they tend to not persist in the environment. So on the one hand, that's a good thing, right? You don't want these um, herbicides or pesticides to stick around and do, you know, wreak havoc or do damage longer than they should. On the other hand, it if that means that over the course of the growing season, you can use two applications of a synthetic pesticide, but you need to do like five or six applications of a natural one to get the same effect, then it's, well, first of all, it's way more expensive for the grower. So if you're talking about economic sustainability, you know, you're in trouble there. But then also, you know, the farm workers who are spraying these are exposed, you know, twice or three times as much. So, you know, really, ah, so, so yeah, so there's, what does sustainability mean to you, right? So if, if all you care about is the environment, like um, synthetic stuff, chemicals getting into the waterways, the ground, you know, absolutely bioorganic. Because I think you're more likely than not, um, there those fruits and vegetables and products will have been grown using, you know, uh, a fewer number of of these um, of these chemicals, and certainly uh, probably less amounts of them too. Um, on the other hand, if you care about workers you know, maybe a different approach is the way to go because, you know, sometimes those workers would have been exposed uh, more. Um, I think another thing I mentioned was, uh, so I got a chance, I was working in Congress, I got a chance to visit a couple of chicken slaughter facilities, um, poultry production plants. And one of the issues that, you know, still going on is how fast the poultry line speeds can go. And one of the one of the issues one of the issues is uh, is whether the workers on those lines can literally do the job as quickly as those chickens fly by. So there is a whole food safety issue too, but but there's also this kind of repetitive injury problem um, that even OSHA has weighed in on. This is the the um, actually it's not exactly OSHA, but it's NIOSH, which is like um, the federal organization that oversees worker uh, health and welfare, basically, and uh, occupational standards. So, um, so you know, if you're worried about these workers having these, like, very serious repetitive stress injuries, maybe you only buy whole chickens. You know, maybe you don't buy chickens cut up in pieces or, you know, your boneless, skinless chicken breasts or, or something like that. Like, that's something, it doesn't matter if it's organic or not. You know, that standard is not even thing, you know? Uh, so, so, <laughs> so they're just, they're like, there's so many things, like, I wouldn't have known that if I hadn't, you know, dived into this crazy world of food policy from all these different angles. There's the, the worker angle, there's, you know, the, the chemical fertilizer, pesticides, herbicides angle, there's, and then there's, um, 
And then there's the food safety issue. So a lot of people eat organic produce because they actually think it's safer for their own health. And that is absolutely not true. Like there, I can hedge on a lot of things, but there's just, ah, like ridiculously small, unsubstantiated evidence that the practice of producing something organic is going to make the food like healthier or better, or, or I should say less dangerous or, or whatever. It's, it's just, it's just not. So, um, you know, there, gosh, I could hedge. I could say there are some studies that show that organic milk or produce sometimes has more nutrients, but you know, that's not across the board. That's like, has to do with whether, uh, you know, certain farmers do certain practices that aren't necessarily mandated by the organic standards, but if they kind of go above and beyond. And um, so it's, it's, it's a little misleading, but I mean, those, it's, it's seriously like you have just one more bite of your carrot and you've made up the difference. So, you know, I, I don't even want to say, oh yeah, there's the, the milk, the carrots, they're so much more nutritious. Like you just have one more bite and you've suddenly just made up the difference. So um, there's now, and food safety, same way. Um, in terms of the likelihood to get like sick, like food sick from contamination or, um, or you know, residues, chemical residues, it's just, it's basically exactly the same. So it's, and you know, these are one of those things, you know, people eat organic for a lot of different reasons. And a lot of those reasons I completely support and understand, except um, some things I buy organic, not even because I think the stuff is better than the um, the conventional counterpart, but because I want to, I want to send a message with my dollars to the industry saying, in general, I support these practices. I want even stronger standards. So, so that's, that's where I, you know, you asked me that question about like what to eat, what not to eat. I was just like, my brain exploded. <laughs> there's just, there's just too much. So, I mean, if you're really concerned about food safety or your health, then I, you know, I like to think that people know exactly what they should do, you know, eat your vegetables, uh, food safety wise, gently cooked vegetables, eat your gently cooked vegetables, uh, whole grains, you know, and I don't mean whole wheat, like white whole wheat bread. Like, I don't think that really counts, but you know, grains, quinoa, oats, bulgur wheat, you know, like, you know, you know what whole grains are. (laughs) You would recognize them if you saw them. You know what food is, Um, you know, eat, eat good food, vegetables, plants, you know, a little bit of protein in moderation is, is never a problem. But, um, but like, if you're concerned about your health, having the vegetables, any kind of vegetables is like way better than buying organic cookies. Organic cookies? Oh my gosh, there's organic everything. Oh, well, when it, when it comes to like knowing, not not as like a, I don't know, like a, a qualifier or something to, to what you're saying. Because I think, I think for the most part, like people have a pretty good idea. And there's a lot of resources out there to learn more. And I think we're going to get to that later. But like for me personally, it's been... Weirdly enough, even though I grew up on a farm and like I, I was around, like I took a lot of egg class, classes, I know how to grow things. I'm kind of, I, my problem is like, I forget to eat and I don't know how much to eat. <laughs> like there was, there was one thing, there was one time in college where I didn't eat for like four days and I'd only realized it when someone told me and I was like, oh wow, I am hungry. It's like, so like, that's like something I work on. <laughs> but that's, wow. I, I like to think yeah, that's, I mean, that's, everyone's different, yeah, right? Yeah, I would like to think no one else is like that. I, I don't 
think, no, I don't think that's the, I, I think the, the world is full of a variety of types of people and we're all, you know, trying to do, well, you know, stay healthy and we're trying to do the right thing. I think we're all trying to do the right thing. It's just, sometimes it's hard to, to see. Um, so it, yeah, you, you asked me, you know, what, what not to, like to give advice to other people. And, and that makes me really uncomfortable. I got to say, cause I don't know what your values are. And if your value, if you value remembering to eat, <laughs> you know, like it might behoove you to like keep some, I don't know, peanuts in your pocket or something. <laughs> I don't know. Uh, well, but, the worst for me is my girlfriend yeah. kind of reminds me like, that's good. She, she, she keeps me alive. It's like, she has like a, like a literal, like life support system. She just takes the bowl away. <laughs> She's, she doesn't do this, but like she could, if she wanted to. Um, so like, I think, I think something that's really important. And I, I, I love just like a little bit on this part, which is like people who are listening and thinking like, Oh, there's so many qualifying. There's so much com- complexity to this, yeah. to these issues. And I think like a really good way to highlight why there's complexity to it is to talk about like, what 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 was life like for like food safety farm uh, uh, farmers all these people before we had like these standards like these the federal things like what was was life better or worse like I'll make it really easy like in, in your in, in in like how you would see it like with all these with all this complexity if you were to take the complexity out and like look at our past is the past better or worse than now and like I I know the answer but. If you know the answer, you should tell me. I think this is also a really difficult question. <laughs> um, there, there, it's a mixed bag. It's a mixed bag, actually. Oh, well, I would think that it's so, all that's better now. You know, like uh, you don't have, you don't have like DDT going everywhere. You don't have, uh, I mean, we don't have like the Dust Bowl anymore. Like, there's like all these like policies and all the, this thought process behind finding what's healthy and and uh, and and good for people. I would think that all of it is for the. I can't think of anything that would really be worse off today. I mean, I guess it's more like strenuous for like a red tape standpoint, but I feel like it all it's for the for the betterment of people. Well, yeah, you know, well, yes and no, right? Like, so I, I guess it depends how far back you're going. Okay, I mean, yeah, hundred years, you got your dust bowl, you got. I mean, you already had your industrial revolution. The population was already taking off. And so we're in a lot better shape than we were at the turn of the 20th century with respect to food safety. Oh my goodness, food safety and labeling. I mean, people literally, you know, wouldn't know necessarily what was in what they were buying. If you had an allergy, you were dead. You know, it was not, it was, yeah, you didn't, and, and depending where you live too, you know, you could live in a big city and not know your farmer. And, uh, and, and milk was, you know, there were not, there was not refrigeration. So yeah, there were, there are a lot of things that are clearly better now. Um, but you know, there's a, there's a growing feeling, I think among a lot of people that like we've lost a lot of knowledge and some heirloom varieties and old ways of doing things that, um, that's unfortunate. Um, you know, and I, I, gosh, I, I watch these documentaries. I, I, you know, I hear you know, people talk about this. And, and the one thing that they're missing, of course, is those old varieties or, you know, that time, that land that time forgot, you know, that past that may or may not really have existed. It's the problem is that, that those, those practices, those varieties, you know, they, they don't feed as many people as we can feed today. And 
you know, it, it was that process of going from a really land-based system where one farmer produced enough food for like literally four people, including that farmer, him or herself, um, to now is, is, is just mind boggling. And there's a, like an adjustment period. So on the one hand, I think a lot of people who have been kind of removed for the, from the farm for many generations have this image, you know, of like old McDonald and, and they think it's still like that. And, um, and I'll tell you what, that's not their fault. The food industry does a lot to preserve that image of like the cow crunching on the grass in front of the big red barn. And it's sometimes as real. Sometimes that's how the farm looks, but more likely it doesn't. And, and, you know, I, we all, people talk about family farms, you know, the majority of farms in America are family farms. And I think people um, who have less familiarity with business would think of the word like the concept of family farm and they think of old mcdonald and really just means a farm that's owned by a family as opposed to like a corporation and yeah the majority are family farms that doesn't mean that they're small that doesn't mean that they're diversified doesn't mean that they're doing good things for the environment i mean it doesn't mean that they're not you know but it's not it's it's this this perception that that's so far from reality and again i don't know whose fault it is i certainly don't want to blame um, the people who have this perception, because it's not like, it's not like we have any comprehensive agriculture education in this country or, or, you know, any industry going out of its way to, to clarify things either. So, but it, it is a real problem when you're expecting one thing and then you see what's actually inside that poultry slaughter facility and you go, oh, that is not what I expected. So there's a, yeah, it's 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 a it's it's a gap in agricultural literacy, I guess, um, that I think it's really harmful and pervasive. I, I think one of the things that when I think about the past that I wish we had today are like victory gardens. I think they're called or like these like community gardens where like everyone would kind of like work together and like feel more like a community. I feel like people don't really feel like a community most times. Like uh, in, the, in the communities I've been at, like people, I get this sense like they're kind of like disconnected, like like a bunch of people living near each other. Than a bunch of people living with each other. So I feel like a garden to come together would probably be nice. I think that's a really cool idea. And, you know, a lot of these types of gardens are springing up. Urban gardens are, you know, they're all over this city anyway and here in Washington, D.C. But there, I've seen a lot of them, especially around schools. You'll see people um, having vertical, like little indoor kind of vertical farming operations or even outdoor if there's space. Um Gardens and kind of little miniature farms. Sometimes they've got chickens. It's, it's a pretty cool thing. A lot of urban regulations prohibit like backyard chickens because frankly um, it's a really great way to spread the flu. So you don't want that in a confined area, but, um, but schools sometimes have just enough land to make it not as dangerous. And, uh, and so it's, it's a, it's a, it's a pretty cool idea. And I love the idea of, of teaching kids about farming and agriculture, mostly because I didn't have anything like that. Like I was one of those people that thought food came from the grocery store. Yeah, when I we we would uh, show at the fair when I was younger, and when I remember my mom would would be educational and be like, "This is where you get ham," <laughs> or like, <laughs> and like the 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 mom would just start like the like the mom of the kid would just start like shaking her head like really 
frantically like don't tell him that don't tell him that he won't eat yeah yeah you know one of my so my first job out of college i worked um in a in a corn breeding lab i guess you could call it a molecular plant pathology lab corn breeding uh at the university of delaware and you know every year a lot of these land grants and other schools will have farm days and kind of the you know invite the community and and the local farmers and so we had this farm day, and and so uh, I was there with a with a graduate student. We were at our little booth at our little table, like talking about our corn breeding program. And right across the way was like a 4-H club, I guess. And I'd never heard of 4-H. I had no idea what it was. And they were talking about bunny rabbits, and they had these little pictures of adorable bunnies, and like showing the different parts of the bunny. And I was like, oh, is this like for butchering, like how to get the meat? And oh my god, the look I got from these people. It was like, no, we don't eat them. And I was like, oh, okay, my mistake. I apologize. I'm just going to walk back right over to my booth. (laughs) Oh, man. So, yeah, I don't necessarily never, like, never know who the audience is even to begin with. I was literally at a farm day. I thought thought that would be cool, but it totally wasn't. (laughs) Apparently, they raise the bunnies because they're cute, Mm -hmm. not for food. Well, in uh, in South America, I think in Ecuador, they eat um, guinea pig. It's like their version of the chicken. Mm. And it's like, mm. when I think about that, I think I would not eat a guinea pig. But apparently it's yeah. very tasty. So I, you, you kind of got to sure. get used to it. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> it's, a, it's a cultural mix out there, right? <laughs> That's where a lot of our potatoes come from, South America. That's where, that's where they originally were domesticated. So that, I guess that makes sense. But yeah, so so yeah, your original question, like thinking about the past, I think we have lost a lot of knowledge, but I think we've gained a lot of knowledge too. And, you know, I think there is a certain amount of nostalgia that we should have about like these old varieties that may be useful, that have traits that, um, that we should value, you know, especially like flavor, you know, which, which has not been valued for the last hundred years in breeding programs. And, and if you're talking about, for example, um, tomatoes or, or, um, you know, carrots, like, I think it's like since the 1950s, the nutritional profile of vegetables has dropped by like 50%, 40, 40 or 50%. I mean, the flavor is going away. The nutrients are going away because we have not been valuing them. We've been literally breeding it out of them. And that's not like, like modern molecular stuff. That's, that's just traditional breeding for yield. Um, which, which is good to a point we got to, we, we certainly have needed to produce more food because the population has been growing and we've managed to stay ahead of the curve for the last hundred years. Um, no telling what's going to happen in the next hundred years though. I think that I saw this report that the, like the population is kind of leveling off, but well, we'll we'll find out. Like who knows? Like people may be wanting to go forth and multiply again in a ridiculous amount. You know, it's it's funny that those reports they happen every ten years or so um, to two things: both the population and and interestingly enough, the the um, average age of the oldest. Right, okay, I'm gonna I'm gonna like mess this up. The if you think about the country that where the people live the longest, you know, it's like either Japan or like Sweden, you know, where people have the longest lives. You look at the average, um, like the average lifespan in those countries, it keeps going up and up and up. 
And people have been saying just like, oh, the population's going to level off. They've also been saying about this, oh, yeah, you know, it. there's got to be an upper limit to how long humans can live. It's going to level off, and it hasn't. And yet they still make these, like, I don't know, these these projections that say it's going to level off, and there's abs, very little evidence to suggest that that's actually going to happen. I think there's a, an island in Japan where the average life expectancy is 101 years old. It's like wow. that must have really good soil. I think it's Okinawa or something like that. Like, oh, that's pr- that's pretty good. <laughs> Let's go move there. Must be really stress free yeah, or yeah. something. Yeah. Um, talking about tomatoes, like, okay, so we've gone to a state where we've emphasized the ability to get lots of them. How or if we, if or what, when I don't know. I'm not asking the question. Right? I'm probably gonna remove that part. But like, how would? <laughs> no, I'm gonna leave it. People, people know I'm weird. But how would we get that back? How would we get the nutrition up and the tastiness back if or increase it? Oh, so you're asking me a science question. Love it. All right. So so there are a lot of techniques that we have, that scientists, uh, breeders have at their disposal for um, integrating new traits into a crop. Um, just loads of, of cool things uh, for everything from models where you're not taking one trait into consideration, but like a, a bunch of traits um, and and kind of molecular models where you have already identified the gene that you want to, to have in your new variety and you make sure that that variety has it. Um, there's, it, you know, it all comes down to what already exists. Um, you know, scientists have been getting pretty good at this this thing called synthetic biology of of literally creating like a bacterium from nothing from from molecules but we don't know enough about complex traits like flavor to just create a gene that's that is right now that is not possible we're we're getting pretty good at things like making antibiotics like we have made synthetic antibiotics that way we look at an antibiotic we say oh that that one looks good, but you know what? A bacteria has already um, developed resistance. We're just going to tweak it a little bit, and you know we can change the biology of it, and now it's effective again. We can we can do stuff like that, um, and pharmaceutical companies do it all the time. But but things like flavor are a bit more complicated. So so what you do is um, you have uh, the National Plant Germplasm System, which is um, this incredible resource that the USDA provides. Um, it has these offices all over the country, and they collect seeds. And, and I call it germplasm because it's not always seeds. They also have like eggs and sperm for, um, for livestock. And there are some plants that don't propagate via seeds. They, they – you um, – you don't grow them from seeds, you grow them from cuttings or something. So they have all these different types of germplasm of stock and they plant them and they test them against all kinds of diseases and, and other factors, how big they get, how much they yield. And, and, you know, if, if there's a trait that you want that you don't have in your commercial variety, you can get that trait, that, that seed from this national germplasm system for free. And, um, and incorporate and try to incorporate it. So, you know, so these are the kinds of, you, you need that resource to begin with. So you need to be collecting it from the wild or from around the world. And, um, you know, some, some of these, some of these crops have been grown just kind of on the land by local farmers for as long as they can remember. 
Um, those are called land races. They just they've just been growing there for a long, long time. And you can collect those seeds, and they're not they're not all the same. They're not like clones, like like what you would you know if you buy like cucumber seeds in the store. Every every seed is going to be the same. Um, these would not be like that. They would be kind of a jumble. But you know you can incorporate those into your breeding programs and um, and see if they taste good. <laughs> or maybe they have some other trait that you want, like they they uh, you know manage to uh, accumulate nutrients the way you want them to, and they you know or they've got a great new color or something. So there's yeah there's a lot of tools that breeders can use, but the first thing that they need is you know the wild stuff already there. It's fantastic to hear that we can like make things, and we're doing these fantastic things like making the germ plasm. I have a question. Which is maybe it's kind of weird, but like, if you wanted to be like a backyard Mendel, like Men, uh, the guy who like invented like the Punnett square for genetics. Oh yeah, oh yeah. Mm-hmm. Could you do that nowadays? Because you'd be like, hey, you know, germplasm people, I want to like make tomatoes really tasty again, and then you like like breed them in your backyard, and you do that. Like, is it possible Absolutely. for someone on, on a local level to be like? Absolutely. Um, so the USDA actually has this thing called extension. And um, for a uh, modest fee, depending on where you live, you can become a master gardener. They have these courses. And, you know, I mean, if you're already a great gardener, you can do this on your own. But if you kind of want to learn a little bit more about, about plants and breeding and your local environment and stuff, um, these are really great resources, really great um courses and then you're kind of plugged into the network of other people which you know it's hard to do it by yourself but but you know if someone else has some really cool new plant that they're working on or something you know you can share seeds so so that, that would be where I would start if you're interested in something like that but but you absolutely can do it yourself um I mean you don't need a whole like big seed company to do this stuff um now I, I guess that was like the premise of U.S. agriculture at the very beginning, about uh, 150 years ago or 200 years ago, like really right when the country started out, um, the government sent out explorers and collectors all over the world to gather seeds like wheat and and corn and rice and everything, um, these botanical expeditions. They brought them back and then they sent out little packets of seed all over the country. Well, I mean, as big as the country was then to people on the frontiers and said, hey, you know, try these out. And that was like the origin of our modern seed companies where, you know, farmers would, they had enough land that they could do this. They could take a little bag of seed and just try it out. And if it worked in their environment, it was tasty and, it, you know, it was, they were happy with it. Um they could do whatever they wanted with the seed. They kept planting it. They, um, you know, they could start a business. They could start breeding the seeds themselves and selling it to their neighbors. And, and I mean, that's why we've got like wheat that can grow in every single state in America. Like that's crazy, right? <laughs> it's not the same species everywhere in the whole country. We have a very diverse geography. Uh, you know, we've got, but we got wheat and corn we everywhere. So it's, it's because of that initial investment in just, you know, finding out what would grow where and having, you know, your own backyard kind of lay breeders, these farmers to do it themselves. So it's very much in the tradition of, of America to do something like that. And there's a lot of support for it too. Sweet. I, I want to uh, have a greenhouse and like, kind of like do like little fun research is like my, yeah. 
I, don't know, I, I like to ask questions and then answer them. I'm like a, a very like inquisitive person. So like I think sure. I think asking questions is fun, but like answering them, like in the pursuit of answering them, even if you like in the end can't answer the question, but have to like ask someone to answer the question. I think it's it's always fun. Like be inquisitive. Like ask questions. Like don't be afraid to ask a silly question. Because I ask a lot of silly questions, like especially people who like listen to the podcast. Like I'll, I'll say a question really silly, but like I'll get the point <laughs> across, and then like someone like uh, Elizabeth will be really nice, like okay, I see what I see the point he's trying to get at here, <laughs> so I'll help him. I will I'll reach across the aisle yeah. and I'll be nice to him and like like yes, Lowell, you can you know there's the extension program for Master Gardener, which I'm gonna look up later, and and that'll be in the show notes. Like anyone who wants to be a Master Gardener, which sounds pretty neat. Like I I would just go around and be like, yeah, I'm a Master Gardener. That's right. That's <laughs> right. right. I put that like I put like a merit badge on my chest, and people think I'm weird. But people people put it on their resumes. Is not is not to be taken lightly. Like it is a thing. It is a real thing. I, I'm gonna ask you two bigish questions next, which is one is just kind of like let us know where we're going. One's gonna be like how you kind of like process, like how you decide on, <laughs> or basically your second paragraph of the email you sent me, like how you decide oh, yeah. on on what to eat and like. Like, kind of give people, like, an example. Like, oh, these are really complex things. Here's, like, yeah. a specific little pie slice of how one person does it. And then the second question, the the second big question is going to be, like, talking about federal research spending, which I, I remember originally we wanted to really dive into that. So I want to make sure that we have time to kind of, like, pick that apart because it's really, really important. So I was just, like, kind of letting us know where we're going. Cool. So I, I was telling you there's no one sustainability label. If there were, I would probably just buy stuff with that label and not have to think about it, right? That would be awesome. Um, but, you know, there are other things that I think about too. So um, one of my first jobs in food policy had to do with food safety. And so I started reading this blog, or I guess it's a website, like Food Safety News, and they just post every time something has a recall or there's a food safety concern. And that was like part of my work, part of my day. And so for that reason, I never eat raw alfalfa sprouts or Mexican cheese. I just don't. It's it's like alfalfa sprouts are one of those things that they seem perfectly innocuous or like anything else. So, um, but they're really dangerous. Like, and I didn't even realize this when I was a graduate student. I actually did an experiment with alfalfa seeds um, where I put them in hydrochloric acid, like totally, they, they were sterile on the outside, okay? I, I rinsed them in hydrochloric acid and then I, I washed off the acid with completely sterile distilled water. And then I put them on a, on a, on a plate to grow them, like totally sterile, and all this bacteria came out. So like, it's not like, it's not like farmers are doing anything wrong, okay? The, these bacteria live inside the seeds and they coat the plant. And that's like natural for them, but it is not necessarily good for humans to eat them. And in fact, there's like food safety conferences where um, like the, 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 the apoc perhaps apocryphal story is that the U.S. was talking to the EU, or I think maybe it was just Germany at the time, about, you know, their practices. And Germany said, yeah, we never have any problems with alfalfa sprouts. And the U.S. rep said, really, that's that's crazy. And then they went through like half a day talking about how, how it could be that, that, uh, that Germany just doesn't have any problems with outbreaks on sprouts until Germany said, whoa, 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 you eat your alfalfa sprouts raw? They <laughs> could not believe <laughs> someone would do something that disgusting. So it's like, this is one of those things where I learned this over the course of a couple of weeks and thought, all right, done alfalfa sprouts. So yeah, so that's something I don't eat. Um, 
I've cut way back on raw oysters, which have this uh, really dangerous bacteria called Vibrio for part of the year. Um, uh, hamburgers. So like, I love a rare steak. I love a rare steak cooked on the outside, raw on the inside, but um, hamburgers can be more dangerous. So I actually eat my hamburgers no less than medium well. And this is like a big compromise for me. Um, and shrimp and shrimp and seafood. So I only buy my shrimp from the U.S. now. Like I look for Gulf shrimp if I can find it. Or if you happen to be so fortunate as to live in Hawaii and you get your Hawaii grown shrimp, that's cool too. But um, a lot of the seafood uh, that we get um, isn't, you know, the shrimp could be produced in countries that do not have the same kinds of regulations about the chemicals they use in the water as we do, the antibiotics that they use. Um, and there's not a huge amount of testing that happens. I mean, FDA should be doing more testing, but they don't have the resources to test everything. So I saw a lot of, of food safety kind of recalls on seafood from Southeast Asian countries. Um, and that doesn't even, and that's just what we can test. So you know, you, there's, I'm sure, perhaps you've heard, there's a lot of um, concern now about illegal fishing and slave labor being used to harvest seafood around the world, uh, especially in Southeast Asia. So I, I try to buy American when I can, because I know the regulations are good and people follow them and they're, you know, less likely to have slaves who have harvested my seafood. So um, I, I try to follow the Monterey Bay Aquarium Seafood Watch, um, that's definitely a link <laughs> you should put um, for this. It's a really good uh, up-to-date um, recommendation list of what to eat, what to try to avoid, both for your health and for the health of the oceans. Um, and and for meat, uh, you know, I'm not a vegetarian. I like eating a diversity of food, um, but I'm not crazy about the way that animals are necessarily treated in the food system. I'm just not. And that's my personal preference. Um, so where I can, like if, if I have a big, you know, dinner coming up or something and I want to have a big roast, I'll, I'll try to buy um, meat with a certification called Animal Welfare Approved. That's one I really like. It, it doesn't mean, it's not organic. Like it doesn't mean no antibiotics, which is what organic means. Um, and that's because the farmers are actually heavily um, not regulated, but like watched, like they get these certifications and the certifiers go and visit the farms and say, okay, they're not keeping these animals in conditions where they might get sick. And then, oh, whoops, we have to give them antibiotics because they're sick. They really do keep the animals in good conditions. And then if they do get sick, then you give them the treatment that they need. And I, I really support that because I don't like the idea of making an animal suffer just because it can't, we can't give it, we should, you know, can't give it antibiotics because it's organic, or, um, or just shunting that animal into uh, a conventional stream, because I, I don't think that you know fixes the problem. And um, so, like that's how a lot of organic milk is produced. Organic cows. Um, one of the things they have to do for the certification is they're never ever allowed to have antibiotics. So, um, so in a conventional dairy. If, uh, if a cow gets sick with uh, mastitis, which is an infection of the, the udders, which actually humans can get too, nursing, nursing mothers can get this too. It's not uncommon to get an infection in the udder. Um, you, you typically take them off of the line, you give them the antibiotics, you throw away the milk that would be tainted with the antibiotics until the cow is completely recovered and there's no more milk, like antibiotics coming out with the milk. And then you put them back on the line. Now, if they're organic, then they never 
ever come back to that line. Their milk is never organic again. But if they're conventional, they can go back on the line and continue production. And so there's never like when you when you hear like no antibiotics ever, I think people think, oh, that that means that there are antibiotics in the milk I'm drinking. But milk is one of the most heavily regulated substances in this country. And if you know, you pool a bunch of milk from a lot of different producers and they test that at the facility that like does the pasteurization and the and the putting of the milk into the gallon jugs, they test it. And if they find any trace of an antibiotic, then that producer has to pay for the whole batch of everybody's milk. And no producer wants to do that. So like they're really careful about it and you, you'll never see antibiotics in milk. So I just, I, I would rather that cow you know, get the antibiotics it needs. I think producers do a really good job of trying to keep the infections down. Um, and, you know, so that's one of those things where, you know, I, I feel like I don't want to see antibiotics used unnecessarily for any means in humans either, you know, <laughs> or, you know, or in animals. But, um, but I, I don't want animals to suffer. And, and, you know, what ends up coming out of this is that organic dairies just have younger cows because they just haven't had the infection yet. Well, happy cows or tasty cows? Is that always? Uh, yes. Well, especially if like they're, I don't want to get too graphic for people out there, but like you literally can, like, can't stress out a cow when you're like about to like slaughter it or else like the meat will get like mm. really weird. Like it'll be like really uh, like tough. Like no one wants tough meat. Oh, that's interesting. Yeah, they'll, interesting. they'll be like, here's some food and here's some water and, you know, soothing music. And then they get like a nail to the head or whatever. Or like, I think they just zap them now. That's what they do to chickens, too. Like, they give them a little massage. They lower the lights. Yeah. And then slaughter. Yeah. I, I think, yeah, I think I've, I've heard the, I've heard the, um, I've heard, what is that quote? Like, like you know, animal welfare, people who raise animals for slaughter, for meat production, they say, we want our animals to have, you know, a really great life with one bad day. And I feel like, you know, that's how I want my life to be. <laughs> and it sounds crazy, right? But, uh, you know, I hope. You can only hope, right? Well, if, if people start, like, giving you massages and playing nice music and stuff and taking you to, like, a, a very, like, nondescript building, like, run away. Be suspicious. Go the opposite way. <laughs> oh, this got really morbid really quickly. <laughs> Soiling grain or whatever on you, or, or I think that's what it's called. Have you heard of that? Oh, oh, oh. So say it again. The soil, the soiling grain. Is that what you said? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Soiling yeah. grain. I just recently yeah. learned about that, and I think it's hilarious. It's a real thing. It's a real thing now. It doesn't have humans in it, but it, like they are actually marketing like that. That's crazy. Well, there's like this. You can get this product. This is completely not to anything we're talking about, but like. You can get this like this product that's like a stuffed animal version of a unicorn chopped up, and it's called unicorn meat. And it's like oh this, my gosh, it's like this little. I'm gonna get it for my girlfriend one day, but like, it's <laughs> it's just like why? Like of course someone's gonna buy this. It's hilarious, but like yeah. <laughs> someone's gonna buy it. That's right. Little little buy it. <laughs> I, I've bought it already, but she told me not to. But uh, <laughs> um, moving away away from uh, becoming soiling grain. Um, in the in the uh, literary sense, mm. what what are some things that people should be aware of when it comes to federal research spending, which you think would not be exciting, but it is. It's very <laughs> okay. All right, so um, I'm gonna try to have this not sound boring for like a minute. Okay, um, 
but I have a lot of numbers. I've, I've heard that like reporters, podcasters, they don't like the numbers, but they, I like numbers too. So here, here we go. All right. Um, so USDA is the primary department that funds agriculture research. They have actually two arms that do this. One of them does uh, makes grants. So they have a, they have a staff that that puts out what they what are called requests for proposals, and it goes out into the world. They try to make them as broad as possible, and people at like universities or industry or you know anywhere even in government can apply for funds that this agency within USDA has. This agency is called uh, NIFA, the National Institute for Food and Agriculture, and they just they just get money from Congress, and and send it out into the world. So any most a lot of agriculture research that you see going on around the United States is funded by this organization. And um, it's not primarily that like, you know, you ask any given ag researcher and they'll say NIFA is not funded enough. Um, we have to cobble together funding for our research programs from a lot of different places. They get some from the National Science Foundation. If they, they if they can justify their work as a little bit more basic and less applied, they can get money from National Science Foundation. There's there's a little bit of money for like uh, energy crops through uh, the Department of Energy, and so you can and and there's some state funds. There's some commodity groups, you know, like the the National Corn Growers, for example, you know, have uh, uh, I don't know uh, less than ten million dollars, say from those types of groups uh, to fund agriculture research. So, um, so, so that's where a lot of the outside funding goes. Uh, USDA also has what, what's called an in-house or intramural research agency called the Agriculture Research Service or ARS. And they, um, they do, they do uh, federal research. It's a little bit more like longer term, very like uh, public sector kind of tries to benefit everyone. There are ARS facilities around the country. Um, so a lot of that research is kind of local or regional. Um, so like, for example, there's an ARS facility out in Idaho that does research on sheep. And it's like, no one else is doing sheep research, but it, it's really important for the Idaho economy. You know, so, so like that's, that's, that's the mechanism for getting that done. And, and most people are familiar with NIH. That's the National Institutes of Health. They're an agency that, that does health research. And what's interesting is NIH has both the intramural and the extramural, so the in-house research and the funding in the same agency. And USDA just does it different. They've got two different agencies that each have their own role. So the NIH, just to like put things in perspective, I have like like 2015 is the last time we had like a budget. <laughs> Thank you, Congress. Uh, the, the 2015 NIH budget was 12 times the size of USDA's research budget. 12 times. Okay, so that's that's the government saying we think that health research is 12 times as important as food research. And and like this this like bothers me because I feel like oh, most of our dis like big diseases, our outbreaks, our epidemics are caused by food related problems. <laughs> it's 
so it like blows my mind that we've skewed the dollars towards treatment as opposed to prevention because the the types of research that 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 the USDA funds and that it does is everything from you know how to grow more crops to produce more yield to how to produce more nutritious crops to how to package food so that it's appeal like fruits and vegetables so that it's appealing to consumers so that they'll buy more vegetables it's it's how to get kids to eat better in school cafeterias it's you know it's all that important stuff and we're just super under investing in it so like the numbers are I have that like so the NIH gets about 30 billion dollars and USDA gets like two and a half to three billion dollars for research and development. And that's just it's just sad to me. It's just sad. And and to, I you know, DOE, the Department of Energy, they also have some um, very small amount to to agriculture research, but it's mostly, you know, energy what you'd expect. And DOE's budget is about six times uh, USDA's budget. So so we're saying as a country that energy is six times as important as food and that health is 12 times as important as food. And I I just like, those aren't my priorities. So it, it, it bothers me. Um, uh, a quick question. Yeah. To give, the, to give the numbers context, how yeah, is that yeah. a percentage of our overall, like how how like because like thirty billion to like an average person to most people it seems like a lot of money right <laughs> so like how much is it, it is. yeah in reality it is it is a lot of money um well oh gosh um let's see I guess I could I could look it up I want to say so the total um I have this number I was gonna say the to- I have the numbers for like the total research um budget for the U.S. All right, here we go. So total research and development numbers in that year was $140 billion total to put things into perspective. Um, and, and that's like including the defense spending and the, so like the Department of Defense and all of our, you know, research there. So um, non-defense spending that year for for just research and development was sixty six billion dollars. So and that's I mean, but that's like I think I think I think of of all that, yeah, agriculture's like two percent. At least it's just tiny, you know. So it's yeah, it seems like a lot of money, but but well, you know, in, as opposed to just giving you the numbers, because like that doesn't, I don't know, it doesn't make that much of an effect on me. Um, so USDA's research and development budget is between two and three billion dollars, right? Um, China spends between nine and ten billion dollars or more on agriculture research and development. They they just blow us out of the water. Um, it's just. It's embarrassing. They've just completely ramped up their investments. Um, and it's smart because actually uh, research dollars in agriculture give a return to the U.S. economy that's 20 to 1. Yeah, I mean, that's like and yeah, and and they're so important. Um, USDA, the way that they the way that this this agency, NIFA, um, the way it awards these uh, the funds, they ask for. Uh, proposals. They say, tell us what interesting projects you want to pursue. And if we think it's good, we'll give you money. So uh, they're flooded with all these proposals and they have reviewers, uh, other scientists who they solicit to, um, for, you know, 
take a look at all of these proposals and um, and just you know tell them how good the proposals are. Some of them are really rated highly and some of them are rated poorly. And they they only fund 20%, so one-fifth of all the proposals that the reviewers rate as recommended to be funded. So I, and, and this is this is like way more shocking to a scientific audience because if you've ever tried to submit an article, like a journal, like a piece of research to be published, the first thing that happens is that that article goes out to a bunch of your peers who like just say crap about it. They they just beat you down. You feel like a terrible human being for even thinking of this research would be published. Like they tell you all the things that are wrong with it. And you've got to go back to the drawing board and try again and resubmit your your paper. And that's like that's like typical. <laughs> and and here you have these same people who do that recommending a certain portion of the proposals that come in as, you know, we should fund these. These are actually really good proposals where the science is important. You're you're likely to get a really good impact. You know, it's it's a it's a well thought out experiment with great results. And we're only funding a fifth of them. We're leaving 80% of the really good proposals just on the table. We're just not even bothering with them. And it's 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 sad, you know, it's like that's the low-hanging fruit. That's the the low-risk, high-reward research we should already be doing, and we don't have enough money to fund it. So, I mean, that's that's just, it's it's just yeah. So I I can get off my soapbox. I <laughs> know it's it's all numbers, but I can get pretty passionate about it because I just I feel like it's such a waste. It's a waste, especially when we're treating the the symptoms and not the cause. How much how much funding would they need? just to take care of the, the low-hanging fruit opportunity? Oh, gosh, that's a really good question. I could look up the exact number, but my guess would be, I guess, so NIFA, the National Institutes of Food and Agriculture, um, this is actually kind of interesting um, if you're totally wonky like me. Uh, its budget right now is is a little under $500 million dollars. It's about four seventy-five, and um, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. Is that right? Four twenty-five, and uh, it's that's how much Congress has decided to to give it to actually appropriate. Now, on the other hand, the the amount that it is authorized for, which is what the like the agriculture committees say, this is how much NIFA should get is $700 million. So they're basically getting half of what even Congress says they should get, but they just haven't given them the money to do it. So I'm not going to say that I don't, I mean, $700 million for, for NIFA for this extramural pot would be super. Um, that being said, I think that, that that money does not include the intramural stuff that, that ARS does, that the in-house research uh, organization does. So I'd say, you know, we'd want to increase the money for both of those agencies, but, um, but just like, you know, doubling their budget would go a long way. And if someone wanted to, I don't know, like call a senator or something like that, what would be a good mm -hmm. way to like show their support? Like an average person? Yeah. Oh, yeah. You could you could write to your representatives or your senators, and and say I really support agriculture research. 
That's all you need to say. You know, it's it's one of those crazy things that I learned um, when I was working in Congress that if so, a senator, you know, is usually um, it takes a lot to move a senator. But a representative, like for a congressional district, they can be very powerful, and they, but they have a very, a much smaller uh, set of people, a constituents that they're working for. So if you talk to your, you know, congressional representative's office and say this is something that's really important to me, it's important to our district, and here's why, it can make a huge impact. In fact, if we got thirty calls or letters. Um, when I was working in a congressional office, if we just got 30 on one issue, that's a huge statement. You know, imagine that, like 30, like that's nothing, right? But but if 30 people felt strongly enough to actually make that call or send that email, it, it makes a difference. Now, it makes less of a difference if that representative has already like made a statement in the other direction <laughs> about it. But if it's something non-controversial like agriculture research, like that's that's easy. That's an easy win. It, the problem is it's just nobody's number one priority. It's barely anybody's number seven priority. You know, it's, it's even, even farmers, like they'll be the first to say, oh, agriculture research is what makes U.S. agriculture possible. It is what means that I don't have to deal with disease. It, it means, you know, all of these things, it's super important. But you know, their number one priority of things like crop supports, insurance, you know, and they should be like, that's important to keep the farmer in business. If the farmer's not in business, then they're not using those great, you know, scientific tools that the ag researchers provide. But at the same time, you know, whose number one priority is it? And that's why it doesn't get that much attention. It's definitely something to think about. Even the small amount, that number, I think it's very doable. I think a lot of people, when they hear about like politics or being av- uh, active in any amount, they think, "What's a what's a few? What what are me and my friends able to do? Like, what can I really do?" And so, like knowing that even the smallest amount can add up, I think is very mm-hmm. powerful. I think that's I think that's one of the things that like a lot of people, at least my in my age group, and I think I think you're about my age, but um, <laughs> um who knows? Who, who knows? I don't know. You sound, you sound like my age. Um, like, I think people just, like, have, like, they care a lot. They don't know how to direct their care. So I think that question, mm-hmm. hopefully for the people that are listening, like, answers that. Like, hey, if you care about these things, if you want tasty tomatoes, yeah, send a letter. Even better. Yeah. Even better call. So Yeah. Even better visit. You can visit them. I've always wanted to, like, interview them and learn how to be, like, a politician. Like, how do you make deals? I've always wanted to know. Mm-hmm. Like, teach me. Teach me yeah. how to say something without saying something. Uh huh. <laughs> That's right. But then I feel like, would they teach me? Would I become a rival? I don't know. I, I have a very active imagination. So, so um, last question because this time I will not overrun our drop our drop zone. The mm-hmm. what are some good websites, books, resources to learn more? What can we do to learn more? Oh right. So, um, well first I'm gonna say in terms of policy and politics and activism, um, the book. Congress for Dummies like saved my butt. I love this book. I mean, it was it was it was the best primer on like really how things work. I love that book. So, I'm going to put that out there. Um if you're interested in policy issues related to ag and research, I'm going to I'm going to plug our society's website. So, they're agronomy.org, soils.org and crops.org. Um, I wrote the policy page on uh, on the farm bill. So, if you're interested in uh, everything you 
ever or never wanted to know about the Farm Bill, you could go there and, and look it up. Um, there are also like opportunities for policy internships and fellowships and travel awards and stuff uh, for our members. Our, uh, we also take about 70 people, our, our members, to um, to Washington, D.C. every year and have a congressional visits day where we we have a workshop. We teach them how to you know, talk about their science or their work with uh, a congressional um, office. And then the next day we go to those offices and we talk about the importance of ag research to like their district and the world. So that's a really fun opportunity for people who are members. Um, but then also uh, the AAAS. So this is the American Association for the Advancement of Science. Their website is aaas.org. And they have also a lot of great tools. So they, all those budget numbers, if you wanted to know, like broken down by agency, broken down by topic, by research, they have all those numbers. Um, I go there a lot to brush up and, and also policy opportunities. So if you're interested in, you know, internships or fellowships, they have their own posted there, but I think they also have a pretty good list of other policy fellowships supported by other agencies or societies or um, organizations. So that's a really, that's a really good um, resource too. Mm-hmm. And for people listening, I'm picking up that Congress for Dummies one because it, I've always wanted to know, like, how do things really work? Like rip off, if you watch the Big Bang Theory, he says, I want to rip off the face of nature and stare, stare, stare to the face of God or whatever. Like, I just like to know how things work on an actual day-to-day level. And not from the news. Like, I don't like the news. Like, I feel like the news is very misleading. But, so like having like books and resources and like sort, like actual, like where to go for the for the things that the news sites i think that's like really phenomenal so i thank you for the recommendations and the suggestions and ah, i think it's just really fantastic i think uh, i hope i hope our our listeners are appreciative of these fantastic resources that exist and i am actually going to read the farm bill like everything you wrote about it since you you mentioned that that you wrote that i'm going to read it and then if i if i have any questions i'll send you them you bet. Yeah, it's it was one of those things where my boss was like, hey, you know, write something up about the Farm Bill. And as I dug into it, I, it's basically like a history of the Farm Bill. And, and everyone in my office is looking at me like, oh, Elizabeth, this is way too long. <laughs> Nobody is going to read this. And they like condensed, you know, everything you write into like, like one paragraph. And I was like, no. <laughs> but that's, we were talking about that earlier, right? If you have more time. It gets shorter. So everything everything you never wanted to know about the farm bill is in there. History, et cetera. You could write the like start a blog and then put like the long version up there. Unless like it's really that concise. Is the is a long one more educational? Like there if, Absolutely. <laughs> well, I would want to read that, but um I'll, I'll start well, I'll start Go ahead and read it. Tell me what you think. I, I would be very curious to hear how you <laughs> what you think of the of the long form farm bill. Uh, explainer on our website. I was reading it earlier. I mean, the other day before we, we talked, I was like, oh, this is nice. <laughs> like It was written yeah. well. I didn't know it was you. I was just like, oh, okay, I guess I'll, I'll read more about it because you mentioned it. Yeah, we didn't even talk about the farm bill. Oh, my goodness. Let's not. Just just direct people to the website. And <laughs> they can always contact me if they've got more questions. We have, I mean, we have like 10 minutes-ish if you wanted to talk a little bit about the farm bill. Ah. Uh. Uh, no. <laughs> no, no. <laughs> no. <laughs> That's fair. We've, we've talked quite a lot. I think, I think I don't want to beat the dead horse. You know, it's, 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 it's just a, it's a policy document. I mean, oh gosh, there's so much history. There's so like, it would take more than 15 minutes to 
dig in deep enough, I think, for it to be interesting. Like, you, I could just say, like, the Farm Bill is the vehicle, the mechanism that Congress uses is to set farm policy in America. It is everything from this tiny, tiny amount of agriculture research dollars to crop insurance, conservation programs, the uh, SNAP supplemental nutrition assistance program, which is like the food stamp program. It's got so much stuff in it and it sets the policy for five years. So it's really important, but it also has this fascinating history of why, why we even put the food stamps in with agriculture research and crop insurance. Like why that even, why crop insurance even exists is, is a topic of, of like intense debate. So, I mean, I could go on and on, but I don't think we have the time. I think that's a, that's, it's a good, like little, it's like a teaser. You gave us like a little teaser. Like this is important. I felt your passion about it. If I was a listener, I would want to check it out. And I am a listener technically, so I will check it out. So everyone, All right. wants- well, I'll, I'll send you, I'll send you the link directly to that page so that you can, you can check it out. I'll read it tonight before bed. Cool. Cool. Love it. <laughs> All right. Well, I want to thank you again for coming on to the podcast. And this time I did not mess up on the time. So I'm pretty. <laughs> awesome. Thank you for listening today. Please subscribe, leave a review, check out our website, learningwithlowell.com or join my mailing list. I'm here to learn and share what I learn. New episodes every Tuesday, new emails every Monday, and I blog on topics that I find fascinating.